Welcome to Every Quarter, the voice of Andover, Phillips Academy's official podcast where we share the compelling stories and ideas of our faculty, alumni, students, and distinguished campus guests. Our monthly show features candid conversations on current events, academia, and Andover's connection to important matters happening around the world. If you like what we do, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a review, comment, and rating. Your feedback helps promote every quarter and helps us tell the type of stories you want to hear. In this episode of Every Quarter, educator and alumna Tamar Zabo Gendler speaks with Andrew Huzio, Curry Family Director of the Tang Institute, about the changing face of higher education and the responsibility prestigious institutions have in owning their own histories. They also discuss Gendler's experience with the Mellon Foundation's New Directions program, wherein Gendler essentially became a full-time student at Yale during the 2009 and 2010 academic year, completing coursework in psychology, neuroscience, and statistics. Gendler, Andover class of 1983, also shares moments of nostalgia, recounting memories with the Jewish Students' Union in Cochrane Chapel, growing up as a faculty child, and how changing her focus from math to social sciences led her to the path she is currently on. During her visit to campus in November, she was presented with the Andover Alumni Award of Distinction. Gendler is Yale's inaugural dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the Vincent J. Scully Professor of Philosophy, and Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Science. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Andy Husio, uh, the Curry Family Director of the Tang Institute, where Delighted to be here today with uh, Tamar Gendler, the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Yale, and the Vincent J. Scully Professor of Philosophy there as well. Uh, Tamar, in addition to being uh, an academic and a uh, dean, is an alum of Phillips Academy. Um, Tamar, just to start, I was wondering if you could just tell us about some memories that you have of Phillips Academy. It's wonderful. I'm sitting right now in Pearson Hall, which when I was a first-year student here in the fall of 1983 is the place where I took the course in which I did the least well during my Andover career. I had studied Latin at Andover West Junior High School, and I thought I was in a position to move into second-year Latin here, and it turned out that I decidedly was not. I had a brilliant old-fashioned teacher named Bob Lane who believed that the way to learn Latin was through the exercise of memory for extraordinary detail. And I turned out not to have that skill. So I have fond memories, but also painful memories of this very <laughs> building. Very good. Thank you. Um, I think any discussion of you and, and your family would be incomplete without... Um, just hearing a little bit about your father and your parents, I'm curious if you could just speak a little bit about uh, maybe what it was like growing up as a faculty child or the influence that your parents had on you, either as a student of Latin or more generally. So my Latin career came to an end soon after <laughs> my first experience with it. The language that I ended up studying here was Russian, which was the language of choice in the mid-1980s because of the political situation. But and I'm happy to talk more about that later, but I first got to know this school when I was in elementary school in 1976 when I was a sixth grader. The then headmaster of Andover, Ted Sider, had, Ted Sizer had what was at that point 
a really innovative idea, which was not just to have a Protestant minister on the campus, but to have representatives of more than one faith tradition. So he appointed to replace the minister what he called a tri-ministry, and it was something like a golf joke. It was a rabbi, a priest, and a minister. (laughs) And the rabbi whom he selected for this was my father, who also had a role as a congregational rabbi at a small synagogue in Lowell. So when I was in elementary school, I started coming to campus with my father, who would not only teach classes in the religion and philosophy department, but also served as the advisor to the Jewish Student Union. And so for me, this was a place imbued with adulthood. It was where all of these extraordinary older kids who had record albums by bands that were extraordinarily popular then, about whom they now make movies, so I see. So Queen was a very popular (laughs) band. It was not an opportunity for nostalgia. But I would come to campus, and the students that I knew first were the students who were members of the Jewish Student Mm -hmm. Union. And I think Mm -hmm. what was interesting in those days is that being open about one's Jewishness on campus was perceived by some of them as a brave thing to do. So it was very interesting, having grown up in a community where it was a presumption that Judaism was part of one's life, to come to a campus where it was, in fact, a rarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, one of the most striking and special things about um, your father's recent 90th birthday was not just how many people from so many different walks of life were there to celebrate him, but how many uh, Jewish students from Phillips Academy really attested to that fact that they felt seen by him uh, at a time uh, when, you know, being a Jewish student was to be outside of the mainstream at Phillips Academy. Yeah, it was it was an acknowledgement that that was a way of being not to be hidden, but to be celebrated and not merely to be celebrated, but also to be shared. Mm -hmm. And I think what it fit into in the ethos of this place was the idea that youth from every quarter meant coming here and then inviting others into Mm -hmm. the cultural tradition of which one had been a part so that it was not an assimilationist Mm -hmm. campus. Mm -hmm. It really was a tradition of bringing a culture and sharing it with those around you. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about your own um, intellectual trajectory as someone who teaches in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies here. I'm curious if there were any classes you took here, either in that department or um, here more broadly, where you maybe had more um, success than this first year of Latin class, perhaps. So I actually never took a rel film Mm. course while I was here. In part, my father taught in the (laughs) department, but also I thought I would be a student of mathematics. Mm. So the building next door, the math building, was one of the places where I felt most affirmed. I did, there was an accelerated math sequence so that there was a course called Math 55, which was a BC calculus class. Does it still exist? It does, slightly renumbered, but yes. Which I took in 11th grade, and then I took Math 65, which was this multivariable calculus and linear algebra course my (laughs) senior year, and I took a course called Physics 55 over in the physics department, which was, again, a a C-level calculus-based physics class. 
And so that was really a domain that I thought I would go on in. And I actually started as a math major at Mm -hmm. Yale, where I went as an undergraduate and then went on in math and philosophy. But the other course that was really powerfully affecting for me, in addition to the courses in math and science, was a course that a teacher named Kelly Wise used to teach, which was called Novel and Drama. And it was a course in what it is to read seriously and what it is to enter a different historical mindset. So for me, though, I took some courses in the history department. I took the big American history course, which was called History 35. The history department never managed to teach me how to think from a chronological perspective other than my own. I really learned that over in Bullfinch Hall, and I learned it most powerfully in novel and drama. How does that, how do those habits of thinking that you were speaking about just now fit in with your sense of what the purpose of uh, a high school education is? So I think what I learned here was not to be afraid of things that started off feeling overwhelming and daunting. I think the lesson that I learned over and over is that the shape of an adventure is always one of mystery and disorientation at the outset and ultimately a feeling of context provided by a kind of wandering. Mm -hmm. And so what I felt like I learned continuously here is that things are hard at the beginning and things are hard at the end, but the way in which they're hard at the beginning is something that by the end feels retrospectively easy, Mm -hmm. and that that's the shape that all learning has. Mm -hmm. Thank you. How does... um, I wonder if if you could speak a little bit more about your shift from uh, a pursuit of mathematics to a pursuit of philosophy. What, um, What were some of the questions that drew you more deeply into the study of philosophy? So I took a course the second semester of my first year at Yale called Philosophy of Space and Time. And it was a course that talked about the philosophical implications of non-Euclidean geometry. So Euclidean geometry suggests that the world is, as we experience it, planar and and that the relation between parallel lines is that they never meet and so on. And non-Euclidean geometry is an alternate mathematical representation of the physical world. But what the course looked at is what does it mean to have an alternate representational framework whereby all relations are transformed as a result of the fundamental assumptions that you make. And what I realized is that what I was interested in in mathematics was which fundamental assumptions are arbitrary versus which fundamental assumptions reflect deeper necessities. And I would say the question that has, in some sense, driven my intellectual formation is the question of which things that seem to be necessary are actually contingent, and which things that seem to be contingent are actually reflective of much deeper patterns. And math turned out to be a special case of the set of problems that philosophy allowed me to explore. 
I wonder if you could give an example of something that seems to be seems to be necessary, but is actually contingent, or vice versa. Just something to illustrate that for people sure. listening at home. Sure. So, so it seemed as the result of the social construction of the relation between sex and gender, mm -hmm. like those two things aligned. Mm -hmm. And then it turned out that one of them was something that was reflective of the way in which we organize biological reality, and the other was representative of the way in which we organize social reality, and that those can come apart. Parenthood and biological parenthood come apart in similar ways. That is, the biological relation between an adult and a person for whom they care can be one of continuity, or it can be that a parenting relationship happens between two individuals who aren't biologically related. So those are two examples of things that are perceived as necessarily connected because they are combinings of social traditions with biological facts. So that's an example of a case where something that seems fixed can come apart. And once you have that realization, you realize that all sorts of social structures that seem deep mm -hmm. might be shallow. Mm -hmm. We have a country that is structured around a tradition of race-based slavery, and consequently there are certain sort of patterns that we encode that once you discover their historical origins start to feel shallower. On the other hand, there are lots of cases where it seems like a simple mandate could restructure a social dynamic where you could just mandate from above that some particular way of being is cool or excellent, or you could anoint somebody as a leader. And in fact, what turns out to be the case is that most social formations are actually reflective of our status as evolved beings, and most of our interactions with one another are actually built out of the fact that we are primates who evolved in social communities of a certain size and mm -hmm. scale. Mm -hmm. And so that's an example. I gave two examples that are both from the domain of what's easy and what's hard to change socially. But they're both instances of mistaking the contingent for the necessary or vice versa. Thank you. That uh, gives us all a lot to think about. <laughs> Um, you mentioned a little bit about uh, the, the racial history mm -hmm. of America, and I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to uh, the recent decision by Yale University to rename Calhoun mm -hmm. College. Um, I'm curious as to how you think institutions like Yale or Phillips Academy can thoughtfully reckon with inherit historical inheritances that may be built on slavery or white supremacy. Yeah. So these are real questions, and every institution that we have has elements of its past that it wants to celebrate and elements of its past that at the very least it wants to reconceptualize. The Calhoun decision at Yale was made on the basis of a set of considerations. So let me start with something methodological, and then I'll give something contentful. When it became evident that the issue of the name of Calhoun College needed to be rethought, the most important decision was the decision to make the decision on principle rather than as an isolated reevaluation. That is, 
we wanted to show through our actions the value of an intellectual tradition and the value of an institution that looks to the heritage of careful thought in deciding how to proceed. So we put together a committee that included historians and philosophers and professors of law and people who had been brought up in the Western tradition and people who had been brought up in traditions in Asia. Because we wanted to think very broadly about what is the symbolic role of naming, what is the grounds on which one might take something that at a superficial level should be shallow, but for surprising reasons that I think have to do with the way in which we are a symbolic species, mm -hmm. end up being extraordinarily deep. So the committee that we put together spent about six months thinking through the principles by which we would rename something. Mm -hmm. And only once those principles had been established by the first committee did we establish a second committee mm -hmm. of distinct individuals and ask them to apply those principles to the particular case of Calhoun. And what happened in the case of Calhoun College was roughly the intersection between two things. One was that it was a space whose name got inherited by anybody who had inhabited it. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I took a class in Pearson Hall doesn't leave me associated for a lifetime with Pearson Hall. It's something that you touch and then leave behind. Calhoun College became a part of the identity of everybody who lived in it. And as a result, it broadened the range of individuals who had the right to express opinions about what that word meant to them. If there's a space that I enter and then leave that doesn't become a part of me, it's not my business to determine what that space is called. But if there's a space which, through my entering it, comes to be part of my identity, what it means to me starts to matter. So the fact that the way that Yale relates to housing is such that the place you lived becomes the person you are for the next 50 years gave standing to a set of considerations that wouldn't have standing for another situation. The second coinciding feature in why it is that we ended up renaming Calhoun was a distinction between what you might call the despite and the because. That is, is somebody's legacy the legacy that it is despite their advocacy of white supremacy, or is it their legacy because of their advocacy of white supremacy? And whereas almost every white male who lived at the time of Calhoun in a position of privilege related to the culture of racial slavery in this country through, in most cases, participation, or at least non-criticism. Calhoun's intellectual legacy was not despite his relation to white supremacy, but in fact because of his relation to white supremacy. And so those two factors together caused us to rename the building. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That, that's tremendously clarifying. I wonder if I could uh, shift gears a little bit and ask you about your time 
when you returned to school mm -hmm. um, as a Mellon Foundation New Directions Fellow. I'm curious if you could uh, say a little bit about what you studied and, and why you chose to study, at, especially at that particular moment in your professional and, and intellectual career. So the Mellon Foundation, which is one of the great sustainers of the humanities and arts in this country, a foundation whose moral origins are complicated as are all the moral <laughs> origins in this country, but with which I am proud to be affiliated, has an extraordinary program where they allow professors, small number of professors, to take a full year off from their careers and become full-time students again. And I had the privilege of holding one of these fellowships in 2010. And it was at a time in my career where I was thinking very seriously about some writings in the ancient Greek tradition, in particular Plato's Republic, where he talks about the parts of the soul. And he says that human beings are built of three pieces that you might analogize to a charioteer, a horse that is a lover of honor, and a horse that is a lover of lower pleasures. Plato was interested in how these three parts fit together. Basically, what's the relation between our rational self and our instinctive self? What's the relation between our status as thinkers and our status as evolved human animals? And I realized that in order to understand the set of questions that I was interested in, I needed to make use of the disciplines of psychology and to the extent that psychology is underpinned by neuroscience, neuroscience, and to the extent that neuroscience is underpinned by statistics, statistics. So I took that year and took courses in the psychology department that were behavioral psychology courses. I followed the curriculum of the second year psychiatry students at the med school. I took a computer programming course so that I could do some computer programming. And I took what I had hoped would be enough math to understand what was going on. I went into the year with the goal of being able to understand every sentence in every article that I was mm. citing in my work and discovered very early on that most co-authored articles are such that at least one of the co-authors doesn't understand every sentence in the article, that the degree of expertise that goes into scientific research is so great that it can't be mastered in a year. But what I did come away from the year with was a capacity to recognize what it is that I didn't know. It was very much a year where I practiced the skills that I described of complete disorientation and then some subsequent reorientation. But I came back from that year and put together a course called Philosophy and the Science of Human Nature whose basic theme was that the questions that deeply concern us as human beings are long-standing, that the same kinds of questions that the ancient Greek philosophical tradition was struggling with were the questions that contemporary psychology and social science are struggling with. And so the structure of the course was to pair an ancient text and a contemporary scientific or social scientific expression of the same question without suggesting that one or the other way of framing it was deeper or more illuminating, but rather to show that they could be brought together around particular questions. 
That's a course um, that has certainly influenced our own teaching here in terms of the Views of Human Nature course uh, that is a long-standing course in the department. And I believe that was also an open Yale course? Yes, it's an open Yale. So the 26 lectures of the course are available online. They are available from the first year that I taught the course. So every single lecture that got recorded for eternity was one that I was giving for the first time. In retrospect, I would have preferred them to record it in 2012, but so it goes. Are there, um, in, in terms of thinking about the role of universities like Yale in, in democratizing knowledge, um, like what, what Takeaways do you see either from that open Yale course or from um, other efforts to to uh, make online or to make these courses available in an online or in other ways? So it's very funny. The the philosophy and the science of human nature course has two origins. One is the year that I spent as a Mellon New Directions fellow. The other is a very funny invitation that I got to lecture for an outfit called One Day University, which is an organization that asks faculty to come and give one-hour lectures to groups of adults who come to basically convention centers. So I gave one at Constitution Hall in Philadelphia, and I gave one at some big Marriott in New York City. But they were the One Day University invitation that I got was an invitation to think about something that I cared about and convey it to an audience of adults who wanted something meaningful to take away. And so I created a, a lecture called Five Ancient Secrets to Modern Happiness that served actually as the, as the basis for the Open Yale course. And I do similar lectures at our alumni weekends where we are asked to take an idea and to figure out what could we say in an hour to a group of people who just want to know why we have chosen to spend our lives learning and studying these texts? And those are both instances of live interaction. I like being with people. I like getting feedback from people. But one of the things that the technology that is transforming our world in all sorts of ways has enabled is the capacity to give a lecture, record it, and then share it with the world. And how we will end up balancing what needs to be done in person with what can be done remotely, I think, is a very, very interesting question for educators. But it is clear that Yale's leadership in Open Yale courses, which along with some work that was done at MIT, was one of the first cases of full college courses being put online. So Yale was a real leader in that regard. And the person who was president then, Rick Levin, then went on to be the president of Coursera, mm -hmm. exactly because of this commitment to sharing the knowledge with the world more broadly. You're speaking about some opportunities, I think, for uh, uh, online learning or universities and sharing their knowledge. I wonder uh, what some challenges you see facing universities in higher education today. So I think there's lots of questions. Universities are a particular bundling. They are simultaneously social spaces where we ensure that the individuals who have been early identified in our culture as having a certain amount of intellectual talent are gathered so that they meet one another, so that they stimulate one another, but it tends to shape their social networks for the next 40 years. And there has been a profound association between a certain segment of the cultural elite and our elite 
academic institutions. So they engage in a certain kind of social activity. They engage in a certain kind of educative activity. The thing that they are most profoundly associated with is the educational mission, which is obviously key to them. They're the engines of the research enterprise for the nation, and they also, and in many cases for the world, and they also serve a credentialing function. And so those four things mm -hmm. are bundled together in a particularly uneasy way that is unique to America in a way I think America sometimes forgets. So when I earlier said when you enter a space like a residential college at Yale, it becomes part of you forever. Mm -hmm. That's uniquely American. If you go on a hike in a national park, a third of the people you see are wearing t-shirts associated with their colleges. You don't wear a t-shirt associated with a hospital where you had knee surgery. You don't wear a t-shirt associated with a cultural institution of which you're deeply a part. There's a way in which that moment in your life is definitive of your social articulation for decades to come. In no other country is a polite second question, where did you go to college? <laughs> in this country, it is definitive of who you are perceived to be. So we have this amazing structure in this country where who you are at 17 plays an uncannily large role in what kind of opportunities are available to you. No other country has its universities do all the different things that American universities do. And the question of to what extent that bundling is essential to the ecosystem's survival and to what extent things can be unbundled is, I think, something that we only discover as we try to take things apart. And as new models emerge or... New models emerge. It's, it's fascinating how conservative universities are and how similar each of them is when confronted with whatever the zeitgeist is. So Yale just did on the two-year campus-wide strategic planning process where we were going to figure out what were the areas where we would uniquely move science forward. And two of our five priorities are data science and neuroscience, which every single other university <laughs> discovered as the area that they were uniquely situated to move knowledge forward. Now, in some sense, it's true because the world is moving forward because of discoveries that we're making about data and discoveries that we're making about the brain. And in some sense, it would be disappointing if universities weren't converging on that. But we all have the same fundamental structures. Yale started a new college about a decade ago in Singapore called National, it's called Yale NUS College. So it's an, a nephew of Yale and NUS. It's a residential college like Williams or uh, Pomona, that is, it's engaged in just the education of undergraduates, no research, uh, as no graduate education. So you'd think if you could start a college from scratch, it would look radically different from other colleges. It wouldn't have semesters or departments or classes or dorms. And in the end, it has semesters and departments and classes and dorms and majors and graduation requirements and electives. And it has them because it fits into an ecosystem of other colleges. Mm. So I'm struck by actually 
how little innovation there is in higher ed and whether that's because we have something optimal or whether it's because we all learn to type on a QWERTY keyboard. I don't know. I know our time with you is drawing near. I wonder if I could, uh, just as a, a closing question, you um, brought up Plato and the Republic earlier and I, I think also about uh, the apology and Socrates' assertion there that the unexamined life is not worth living. I wonder if you have any just concluding thoughts, reflections on that. So I think there's two strands both important to embrace, one of which is the importance of examining and questioning, the other of which is the importance of accepting givenness. And I have been struck by the number of colleagues, the number of students, the number of individuals that I interact with in my life who have been moved by the mindfulness traditions, either within Eastern culture or within Western culture. So I think it is simultaneously important to navigate the world with a feeling of questioning and to navigate the world with a feeling of acceptance. And I think we do a lot of training in the former, spurred by the Socratic recognition that examination and challenge are crucial to flourishing. And at least in my own formal education, there was much less of training in what it is one is to do with what is given and unchangeable, and how that also is a required way of cultivating an ability to navigate a world that one does and does not control. Thank you for that answer and for your time this afternoon. This was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for the honor of the opportunity to converse with you. Every Quarter is produced by the Office of Communication at Phillips Academy in Andover and made possible by a grant from the Abbott Academy Fund, continuing Abbott's tradition of boldness, innovation, and caring. Like what you've heard? Spread the word. Share EQ with friends and connect with us using the hashtag EveryQuarterPodcast. You can also find us at podcast.andover.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Jesse Wallner.